0: Sunday, Second Corinthians chapter 5, Jonathan's going to be preaching us this morning from verses 11 through 21, so those are, that's what we'll read here. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation.
1: passage with a conclusion. Not my conclusion. I know I'm new at this, but um, you're still going to get more than a five-minute sermon from me. Now, we're going to begin with Paul's conclusion, which then acts as the foundation for the rest of this passage. In verse 14, Paul states this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now at first glance, this might seem a little bit confusing. What is Paul talking about here? It's pretty obvious that the one who died and raised is Jesus Christ. But what does it mean that one died, therefore all have died? Clearly, we aren't talking about a physical death here, because last I checked, we are all very much alive. Instead, Paul is talking about our spiritual status. We were dead in our sin. Paul expounds on this truth in the later epistle of Ephesians, so if you could keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians and flip to Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, before Christ we are all lifeless, dead, slaves to sin, with No hope of rescue. And just like someone who is dead can do nothing to change their status or circumstances, we too could do nothing to save ourselves from the death penalty for our rebellion against God. But Jesus paid the price for our sin by coming to earth, taking on flesh, just as we have been proclaiming all Christmas season, and paying the price for our sin in his own death on the cross. One has died for all, and therefore... All have died. The price has been paid, but that's not the end of the story. In verse 15, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now he introduces the second category of people, those who live. Once again, Paul doesn't go into much detail here regarding the actual process of transformation from death to life. However, we can once again understand from the context of scripture that he's talking about life given to those who believe in him by faith and accept his gracious gift as payment for their sins. But we were not raised to life so that we could continue to live as those who are still dead in their sins. Instead we are raised to live for Christ and I know to many of us here today all of this seems basic and fundamental But how often do we forget this? How often do I forget this? That this is not just something that affects my eternal residence, but this is something that should affect every decision that I make, every interaction that I have, and every thought that I think. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. How can I go on living like nothing has changed, knowing that Christ gave his very life to rescue me from death? This makes me want to live for Christ. Because of the gospel, the believer now has a new perspective. Let's read verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, what does this mean to regard according to the flesh? I think that there's two implications of this phrase. The first is that before Christ, we judge others by their outward appearance. Paul refers to this back in verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Throughout 2 Corinthians, we see that one of Paul's purposes for this letter was to confront these accusations that were being made about him. You see, the Corinthians were obsessed with climbing the social ladder, <clears throat> and they wanted to be seen as people of significance and authority. And this thought process had begun to infiltrate the church as well. Dynamic, self-seeking preachers, who Paul later sarcastically dubs super-apostles, were using their preaching to gain wealth and notoriety from those who were in the church. And they were calling Paul's ministry and his character into question based on outward appearance. Well, Paul was not like these other preachers. His ministry revolved around bringing glory to Christ and living for him. So in comparison, his ministry did look strange and different than those self-seeking preachers, and he became the target of criticism. Now, I don't know if you've ever um, had the misfortune of stumbling across the comment section under posts and social media, Um, but people are just so mean. Most people wouldn't have the courage to insult people to their face. Maybe some would. Um, But for some reason, Under the anonymity of a username and the privacy of their own homes, people gain all this courage to say just terrible things about people. And to me, this feels like the first century version of that. If YouTube had existed back then, I think that the channel containing Paul's sermons would have had a comment section that looked something like this. Um, Did everyone forget how Paul used to persecute the church, and now he expects us to follow his teachings about Christ? Um, Hashtag canceled. Um, I've seen his ministry in person and not impressed. It's super low budget. (laughs) Or his recorded writings are powerful, but live performances, actually pretty weak, and As sarcastic as I'm being about this, it's not too far off. If you look at chapters 10 and 11, you see that these comments are pretty much what the Corinthians were saying about him. Um, Chapter 10, verse 10, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. And um, in 11, verses 5 through 6, he refutes some of this again by saying, indeed, I consider that I am in... I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. People were attacking him for all of these superficial things, and this was causing massive rifts in the church and in their relationship with Paul. They were regarding Paul and his ministry according to his outward appearance and skills— and ignoring the truth of the gospel that he was proclaiming to them. Paul, however, chose to embrace even boast about his weakness so that the power of God working through him might be displayed all the more. The other implication of regarding others according to the flesh is the sinful and fleshly outwork out, out sorry, the sinful and fleshly outlook from which we can so easily judge others. When we are dead in our sins, everything about Jesus and the principles of his kingdom look like foolishness. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians one eighteen. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. We all once regarded the message of Jesus and the cross as absolute foolishness. And to an, abs- to an unbelieving world, the Christian life does look like foolishness. I mean, think about it from the outside viewpoint. Why would you willingly dedicate hours each week to sit and listen and study to the same book over and over and over again? Why would you give a substantial portion of your paycheck To an organization that then turns around and asks you to volunteer your time and your talents. Why would you choose to look out for others when you could use your time and resources to get ahead financially? Provide a better life for you and your family. From the outside, you have to admit it doesn't make a lot of sense. Paul addresses this um, back in verses 13 and 14 of this passage. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. This term beside ourselves literally means out of my mind or crazy. Um, If we are crazy, he is saying, then we're crazy for God. And it's because the Christian is motivated by something more than what might seem reasonable to those who are watching. we who believe have been saved from death, eternal death, and that motivates us to live for God. The Christian life should not be one of obligation or reluctant obedience. It should be motivated by love, love for the one who gave his life for ours. And that motivation changes everything about how we live. It's a complete shift in perspective and identity. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Now tomorrow is New Year's Day, and like many holidays, New Year's seems to be approached with either hope and excitement, or disdain and cynicism. Some celebrate the hope of a fresh start, a clean slate, and a chance to begin again, while others see January 1st as just another day, more of the same, marked by resolutions that are destined to be broken. And you know what? Sometimes I approach this idea of new creation just like a New Year's resolution. I understand that Christ paid the price for my sin, and I am thankful for that. So then I decide that I am going to do my best to change myself. If I just resolve to keep the perfect schedule for devotions, read the right books, meet my goal of time and prayer each day, then I can see real change in my life. And while all of those things can absolutely help real change take place in the life of a believer, the heart of what I'm saying is I need to try harder. I need to make myself better for Jesus, and I ignore the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the only one who can truly renew my heart and desires and bring lasting change to my life. Jump ahead with me to verse 21, the end of this passage, where Paul summarizes what this transformation looks like. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is the key passage of the exchange materials that our church has been working through these past few months. And if you have not yet had a chance to go through that material I would highly encourage you to do so. Ask one of the pastors here for a copy because it so perfectly illustrates the nature of God and specifically this truth that unbelievers and believers alike have such a hard time fully understanding and believing. Jesus lived a sinless life, and yet because he loves you, He took upon himself all of the wrong that you have ever done or ever will do. He took your identity of sin and paid the penalty on the cross. But his work didn't stop there. And this is what I forget all the time. Not only did he take your identity of sin, but he then gives you his identity of righteousness. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ... You are the righteousness of God. You have a new identity. In terms of what God sees when he looks at you, it's already done. He sees Jesus' righteousness when he looks at you. There is no trying. Righteousness is your identity. And that gives us so much hope. Now we are no longer trying to become something trying to fix a messy, broken life. We're simply living out our new identity in Christ and allowing his spirit to transform our motives and our actions. Let's go on to verses 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. All this, this newness of life, comes from God. And he, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. The word reconciled is this idea of a relationship that was fractured, being made right, or restored. I think as a general rule, people find the concept of restoration captivating. People love to see HGTV home renovations where old houses are restored to their former glory. And more recently, cleaning videos have exploded on social media platforms. Now, I'm not just talking about how-to videos of cleaning solutions, but these are just videos of people cleaning things. The content creators will take absolutely disgusting kitchens, rugs, shoes, bathrooms, you name it, and they film themselves... As they clean these messes. And then they show you the before and after transformations. On TikTok alone, the tag hashtag clean talk has accumulated 98.3 billion views. That means people are spending millions of hours watching other people clean. And maybe more mind blowing is that people are getting paid to let others watch them clean. So parents, Instead of getting frustrated about the last two-week build-up of holiday mess, just think of it as a money-making opportunity. <laughs> before, I make, before I sound, though, that I'm making too much fun of this, I have to admit that I have found myself scrolling for, through Facebook, and I'll stumble across these videos, and more often than not, I will stop and watch the entire video to see the before and after transformation. I read an article from the business magazine um, Mirror Review that proposed these videos are so popular because people have a natural desire for neatness, and they find watching others cleaning comforting. Specifically, people who are overwhelmed or struggle with depression can find these videos soothing as these dirty-to-clean transformations bring a sense of calm and order to their potentially disorderly, disorderly lives. So I don't know what that says about my own mental state, but I do enjoy these videos. Seriously, though, I think that this internal desire for cleansing and neatness is not just about having an orderly living space. I think it speaks to something deeper, an internal need for restoration that began in the heart of man when Adam and Eve first sinned. We, as a fallen, broken humanity, can sense that something is broken within us. And whether we try to fill that brokenness with wealth, with love, with good works, or cleaning videos, we will always find that that void of emptiness shortly returns. The only way to true newness and restoration comes from God. All this comes from God. Paul then goes on to say, That not only had they been reconciled to God, but he and Timothy also had been given a new mission, this ministry of reconciliation. You see, it wasn't enough for Paul to be content with with his own reconciliation with God. He and Timothy were then to spread that message of reconciliation to others. They were now to be ambassadors for Christ. This picture of an ambassador in the context of the Roman Empire would carry with it the concept that the words that Paul and Timothy spoke carried all of the weight of authority as if they came from the mouth of God himself. So when they make their appeal at the end of verse 20 to be reconciled to God, it is understood that this command is coming from God himself. This is an interesting command. If you remember, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth. So the understanding would be that he is writing this to believers. So why then is he commanding them to be reconciled to God if most of them were already believers? Well, even as, um, well, even as believers, it is possible to have a standing of reconciled or justified before God while living in a way that does not reflect that standing. So Paul's command is twofold. For the unbelieving listener, Paul would say, be reconciled. Recognize that on your own you're dead, powerless, and desperate for your ne- in your need for a savior. Turn from your sin and place your trust in Christ's death and resurrection. Paul's message to the majority of his listeners, however, is to live lives that reflect that reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Recognize the, "'Recognize the great sacrifice that Christ made to redeem your soul. "'Don't live a life motivated by what others think of you "'or to please those who will help you advance in society. <clears throat> "'Instead, be motivated by the love of Christ. "'Allow him to work through you. "'Put aside that old sinful lifestyle "'and allow God to sanctify you through his Holy Spirit.'" <clears throat> Also, notice that this command is passive. The listener is the object of this command and not the subject. He doesn't say, you, reconcile yourself to God. Instead, he says, be reconciled to God. Allow God to reconcile you to himself through the finished work of Christ. Just as those who are spiritually dead have no way to earn forgiveness from sin on their own, we who are redeemed must also submit to God and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of Christ. Furthermore, when we live a life reconciled to God, motivated by his love, it then allows us to be reconciled to others. The self-seeking attitudes of the Corinthians had resulted in conflict between themselves and Paul and between each other. And likewise, if we, are, if we are honest, we will find that the same is true in our own lives. I know that when I am living in my own strength and for my own interests, <clears throat> I find myself in conflict with those around me. Instead of being motivated by love for others, I expect others to meet my needs, and I get frustrated when they fall short. I'm motivated by comfort and ease, and I get angry when people or circumstances threaten my own relaxation. I am motivated by others' opinions of me and disregard the God who sees my heart and knows every thought. And while this text does seem to be referring specifically to Paul and Timothy, I don't feel that I'm overstepping Paul's intent by saying that the rest of us who have been reconciled to God have now also been given this ministry of reconciliation. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ is the ultimate reconciler of God and man. And Paul, too, sought restoration throughout his ministry. So to follow in their footsteps would, to, would be to promote restoration in the lives of those around us. Also, in the final few verses of 2 Corinthians, Paul challenges the church there to seek restoration. He writes, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Once we have been reconciled to God, it is our mission to then live lives reconciled with each other and to encourage others to do the same. This is an extension of the Great Commission. The believer, every believer, is to make disciples, and that process begins with sharing the gospel message of reconciliation with the world. And then, through discipleship, we continue to help others become more and more like Christ as we surrender to the work of God in our own lives. So, I appeal to you be reconciled to God. What does this look like for you? Perhaps you have never been reconciled to God. Maybe there has never been a time in your life when you personally have made that decision to follow Christ and accept his gift of new life. So can I encourage you today, if that's you, would you talk to someone about that? We would love to show with you, show you from, from the Bible how your sin can be forgiven and how you can be given Christ's righteousness instead. What a fantastic way to start a new year and with a brand new identity in Christ. Or maybe you're a believer, but there's areas of your life that you are withholding from God's control. Maybe, like the Corinthians, your life right now is characterized by a critical spirit or or seeking approval from others instead of living a life motivated by love for God. Or maybe you are just worn down from trying to manufacture change in your own life out of your own strength, apart from the power of God. Can I urge you as well, be reconciled to God. Embrace your status as a righteous child of God and allow him to change you as you humbly follow him. Also, to those of you who are believers, let me encourage you to take seriously your role as ambassadors of Christ, ministers of reconciliation in the lives of those around you. We have been given an incredible gift, and that should motivate us. We want to share that news with others. It's a crucial part of the life of a believer. And if you don't feel adequate to share that good news with others, there are many here today who would love to come alongside you as you grow in the knowledge of your faith. We'd love to show you how to use the exchange materials as an easy way to share with others what God is like. Or you can join a growth class. We've got a whole new set starting at 9.30 next Sunday. That's a great way to gain a better, better understanding, not butter understanding, of God's word and practical ways to use it to speak truth into the lives of those around you. Be reconciled to God and allow him to use you to encourage others towards reconciliation as well. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this newness of life that you've given us, that you see us as righteous. What an incredible gift you have given us. I pray, Lord, that this spirit of reconciliation would be one that permeates Our church and the individuals of our church. And I pray that you would equip us to use, uh, to take this message of reconciliation to those around us, that it would then permeate the entire town of Muscatine. Pray, Lord, that you would help us embrace our identity as righteous, that we would live in the freedom of that and rest in in the power of your love all these things we pray in the name of Jesus amen